many of you are aware that yesterday uh, there was not only rain, but there was also a cookout. And that cookout was up in Connecticut, and a number of us went to that. And um, we, the Woodards, rented a car so that we could determine when we left and when we arrived and how many stops there were along the way and all of those things that you think about when you have a baby and a wife and just more complicated factors than, uh, than, than single Andy would have ever even thought about. The process of renting the car, though, was, um, had many steps to it. So um, it was on, I think, Thursday I was doing this. I should have done it the week before, but alas. Um, So Thursday, I'm trying to rent a car and searching from multiple different agencies and um, finally landed on Turo. Raise your hand if you've ever used Turo. Okay, so most of you have not. But uh, Turo is uh, an app. Uh, It's a a website that you can use to rent cars, um, sort of like Airbnb, but for cars. And uh, one of the things about Turo is that it has, um, unlike normal rental cars, it has mandatory insurance. Normal rental cars, you rent them on your credit card, and your credit card has automatic insurance, which covers your rental car, and the rental car agencies don't tell you that because they want you to buy their own insurance, which actually isn't even insurance. Um, So they kind of like guilt trip you at the counter to pay the extra exorbitant rate. for their insurance, but um, Turo requires that you get insurance. And so I have, like knock on wood here, but it's over with. So uh, I have an extremely good driving record, have not been pulled over very many times or in very many wrecks. Um, So I look at this and I'm like, this is not necessary. I don't need this insurance. I'm renting it with my rental car, or with my credit card, We're, we're good. But the policy says you have to have the insurance. I don't want the insurance, but I need to if I'm going to click next. I have to check either the low-level insurance or the high-level insurance. There is no option to skip the insurance. And it is that way with a lot of types of insurance. There's just a lot of insurance that, frankly, you don't want and you don't need, but there is some law that requires that you have it. Well, today we're talking about faith versus fire insurance. There is a view of Christianity and the Christian life that views salvation as little more than fire insurance. And our text today is probably the premier text that that should bring that to mind. So think of that imagery of insurance as we get into our text. We're starting in verse 12 and we'll read to verse 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. This book of Corinthians addresses a lot of different problems, a lot of different topics, and it kind of jumps from topic to topic and problem to problem. And so the problem of this section is that some people in the church in Corinth, some Professing Christians in Corinth, 
embraced a form of theology similar to the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a religious group in Israel that denied the resurrection. So they were sad, you see. That's the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I almost didn't say that, but I thought, you know what? It's the only useful memory aid related to that that will help you forever remember the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the theological liberals, and the Pharisees were the theological conservatives. The Pharisees added extra rules that weren't in the book, and the Sadducees took away rules that were in the book, or teachings that were in the books, namely the resurrection. So the Sadducees were like, yeah, we don't believe in that. The afterlife? Nah. Now, the Pharisees were a larger group, the Sadducees were a smaller group, but the Sadducees had more power and so on. That's not the point, but the point is simply that there was a group of people in the church at Corinth that didn't believe in the resurrection and um, had this ideological connection to the Sadducees. We don't know if there were like um, relational connections to the Sadducees, if these were like ex-Sadducees who had fled from Jerusalem and landed in Corinth. We don't know. But their ideas were similar. Now, specifically, the issue dealt with here is a denial of the resurrection in general. The specific problem is a general problem, and that general problem is that nobody rises from the dead. They're teaching that there is no resurrection at large. Their teaching was not so much concerned on Jesus' resurrection in particular. So in our modern context, um, this discussion of the resurrection always revolves around Jesus' resurrection. Not so much with today's text. Today's text is not as primarily focused on that as the launch point of the argument. But the launch point of the argument is not whether or not Jesus is raised. It's whether or not anybody is raised. Paul's going to connect all that together, but the foundational issue is that there are professing Christians in the church in Corinth who say, nobody rises from the dead. Or in effect, they're saying, there is no afterlife. So this conflict of ideas is primarily focused on the eternal fate of humanity or what happens when we die. So if you thought a minute ago that this might not be very relevant for you or for anyone today, I'm here to tell you this is relevant because everybody needs to consider the issue of what happens when we die. Hence the title, Faith versus Fire Insurance. What are the implications of this belief? The implications of the belief that there, are no resurrection, that there is no resurrection. Well, first off, it means there's no afterlife. You die and that's it. Like, how, how controversial do we want to be? Um, like, like, like a bug. You know, you step on the roach and that's it. Or a mouse. You kill the mouse and it dies and that's it. And yes, even like your cat. Your cat dies and that's it. Probably even your dog. But I'm not sure. There will be animals in heaven or in the new creation. We know that for sure. My theory is that pets are saved by works, but um, I, guess we'll, I guess we'll find out. Um, the implications of this belief is that there is no eternal life. There is nothing beyond. You just die and that's it. No heaven, no hell. 
Look in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Paul is starting with this point that we very clearly preach that Jesus was raised from the dead. But there are some people in your church, not just, not just people at large, not just folks in the community, but there's people among you that are teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, we've clearly established that Jesus rose from the dead. And if that's the case, then why are these people saying that there is no afterlife? It doesn't make any sense. Because, verse 13, necessarily... If what they're saying is true, if there is no resurrection of the dead at all, then Christ is not risen. If there is, if there is nothing beyond the physical world that we see, then not even Jesus rose from the dead. See, there's an issue here. You, you might, um, if you're a, a more... Um, If you have a more peaceful personality and you like to just have everybody get along and let's all just cooperate and we can have a compromise. We can meet in the middle and we can just either agree to disagree or maybe you're 50% right and I'm 50% right and the truth is somewhere in between. If that's your personality, you might be tempted to see your um, naturalist or secular friends who say there is no afterlife and be like, oh, well, you know, there's some middle ground here. But there is no middle ground. There is no middle ground between either this is all there is or there is an afterlife. They can't both be true. Have you ever considered that there are people who call themselves Christians who deny the resurrection of the dead? See, the problem is that if this is happening, where there are people who call themselves Christians who are denying the resurrection of the dead, and then there's the rest of us Christians who believe the Bible, um, even if our temptation or some of our temptations is to be peacemakers among warring ideologies, and we want to bring these folks together into the same church, there might be an outward show or an outward look of unity, and there might even be an, a, a, a verbal indication of unity. Hey, we're using the same vocabulary. We both say Jesus, and we say sin, and we say forgiveness, and we have a Bible or a religious book that we read from and we talk about good works and we talk about love and loving your neighbor and we have some of the same or much of the same vocabulary but the difference is that under the hood or underneath of the the attire or the outfit there is a completely different system underneath there's a completely different body underneath there's a different heart underneath there's a different operating system completely even if they look the same on the outside. So you can, be, you can be in the same room. You can be in the same small group. You can be in the same denomination, but yet you are on radically different pages, even though outwardly things look the same. So have you ever considered that there are people who call themselves Christians who deny the resurrection of the dead or deny the afterlife? They existed in the first century and it exists today. Today, very few Christians would deny the existence of heaven, but it is not 
uncommon for prominent, by the way, when I use the word Christian, I'm just referring to self-professed Christian, people who call themselves Christian. It is not uncommon for prominent Christians to deny the existence of hell. These people, they're, they're not likely to deny the existence of heaven, but yeah, they'll say there is no hell. They're here in this town, this city. If you have Christian friends, I almost guarantee you, you have friends who go to their churches. One of the largest evangelical churches in the city, their pastor is an annihilationist. He doesn't believe in hell. And he's at the table with all the other Christian pastors in the city as though we're all on the same page. And part of the issue is that a man named John Stott, who's no longer with us, also was an annihilationist, and he made it socially or theologically acceptable to deny hell and to be an annihilationist. In our evangelical seminaries, people like the schools I went to, they're reading John Stott's books and being like, hey, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. This is a great book on the, on the gospel, on the cross of Christ, and I suppose that it is. But the problem is the guy doesn't believe in hell, so how's this supposed to work? There's a, a few different views that you need to understand in order to have the right framework for this. So there's, there's positions. There's universalism, inclusivism, exclusivism, and annihilationism. We'll go through these slowly. So, number one, universalism. Universalism. This is the belief that all people go to heaven. Universalism. There's a form of it called Christian universalism or hopeful universalism. This is all... Nonsense. Read the Gospels, and you will see very clearly that Jesus Christ, of whom the term Christian comes, believed in hell. And what we see in the Bible, which is our religious book for Christians, that Jesus, according to the Bible, is the one who actually casts people into hell. These are basic things, but it might be too complicated for some religious leaders. Universalism is not an option for the Christian, as far as your belief goes. This is, this is not like, oh, hey, good men can differ on this. So you're a universalist, or you're a Christian universalist, and I'm not, and we can just, it'll all be fine. No, it's not fine. Universalism, option one. Inclusivism, option two. Inclusivism teaches, so if universalism teaches everyone goes to heaven, inclusivism teaches everyone goes to heaven through Christ. So, think with me. Uh, you know the scenario of the um, deserted island. It's not deserted because there's people on it. But the deserted island where there's people that have never heard of Jesus and then they've, they've never had access to the gospel. Well, what about them? And then the person who just is too soft, they're like, oh, well, you know, God gives them a chance. Well, what's the chance? They sin. This is the purpose for missions. Because there is a real heaven and hell, and there is a fate for people who die in their sins, and that is what we call hell. So inclusivism teaches that everyone is saved through Jesus, but it might be through 
Islam through Jesus or through Buddhism through Jesus or Hinduism through Jesus. So, so they're sincere. God looks at them and he, he knows their heart. He sees their heart. And so they are a practicing Hindu and they're faithful in that religion. And then they die. And at the end of the day, they go to heaven because lo and behold, God actually saved them through Jesus, through Hinduism. They thought they were a Hindu, but they were really a Christian. This might sound ridiculous to you, but you take a, don't do it, but you take a course in missiology at basically any seminary in the country, and this is the type of material, this is the type of literature that you're going to be reading as scholars are debating these ideas. By the way, here's a side note, but I think it's useful for two of you. When a seminary departs from the faith, they go first through two departments. Old Testament department and the missions department. So the Old Testament department, their first exit is through the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture because they're looking at these, first off, the Pentateuch, the first five books, books of Moses, and they're like, oh, creation? No, that's impossible. Science tells us that it didn't happen that way. Therefore, this is um, not literally true. It might be allegorically true or it's poetry, and then from that launching point, once your foundational couple, first couple chapters of Genesis are discarded as not really being true, true, then you just go off into lots of terrifying stories about genocide. And then you're like, well, that also can't be true. And maybe this was just a pre-undeveloped um, view of God that God would tell uh, his people to like annihilate the Canaanites. No. I mean, okay, maybe, maybe that was the tradition, but it's wrong. And then it just spirals from there. So that's how the Old Testament department goes off the rails. Then the missions department goes off the rails by the idea that there's something like 6,000 unreached people groups that make up roughly 2 billion people that have never heard the name of Jesus. And so for the people who are thinking about that problem on a daily basis, and if they have even a shred of empathy or sympathy or compassion or whatever word you want to put in, they, they've got some feelings or they've got a heart. And they're looking at this and they're saying, how can this be that for 2,000 years, much of the world has lived and died without ever hearing the name of Jesus, which means that if the third view, which we haven't gotten to yet, is true, if the traditional view is true, then these people are in hell. And I don't like the thought of that. That doesn't sound very loving to me, or as Rob Bell and some others say, like, my God's not like that. So they're either universalist or an inclusivist. But then the last position, which we will now discuss, is the exclusivist position. The exclusivist position is also just known as traditional Christianity. This teaches that only those who believe in Jesus go to heaven and that the rest go to hell. So you need to have conscious faith in Christ in order to be saved. These people also believe that hell is real or literal, as some would say. And it is what we call eternal conscious torment. So the exclusivist does not believe the fourth view, which is annihilationism, which we referenced earlier. The annihilationist believes that only those who believe in Jesus go to heaven, but the rest are annihilated. The rest are, are squashed. They're, 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 they're snuffed out. They're erased like your pencil eraser can just like wipe out that, um, that gray lead on your, on your piece of paper. 
Some will try to say, well, annihilation is compatible with Christianity. Um, inclusivism and universalism are beyond the bounds. That's, th- those ones are heresy, but annihilationism, it might be wrong, but it's not heresy. Like, you can be a Christian and believe this. But this is leading th- down that path where you're, you're just setting up your questions in a wrong way. You're framing your question as, how far away from biblical truth can I be and still be a Christian? And that's a problem. You should not be even entertaining those frameworks for argumentation. I don't know if my verb is or my term is right, but I might call it begging the question. I don't know. You're building an argument on a false premise. Our goal should not be to see how big we can possibly make the tent and, and, and be a center-bound set, as they say around here, where, oh, the only thing we're concerned about is the center, and the edge is fine. Like, who cares? Whatever. No, it, the edge matters. Those who are plunging off the cliff into hell, that matters. And we should care enough. We should love them enough to tell them, hey, there is a hell. And unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So this is a problem that everybody needs to be concerned with. Every single man, woman, and child, every single person who ever lived needs to be concerned about this. And you as a Christian who know the truth, you should also be concerned about this enough to, well, start off by thinking about it and being aware of this issue and being aware that not all um, professing Christians have or are teaching truth on this matter. And then love your neighbor enough to be willing to, first off, pray for them. And then secondly, actually say something. Say something to them. Open your mouth and use words to tell them. So, uh, I said, have you ever considered there are people who call themselves Christians who deny the resurrection of the dead and deny the afterlife? This existed in the first century and exists today. Uh, Beyond these positions, universalism, exclusivism, inclusivism, and annihilationism, there's also a historical view that developed called Socinianism. I talked uh, with Luke about this today uh, on Friday. Um, Socinianism is a view that took over much of the Northeast, uh, Northeastern United States in professing Christian churches. Socinianism is a denial of the deity of Christ. It's a belief in only his humanity. It's a denial of the Trinity. If you are looking for a Socinian church around you, wouldn't recommend it, but you could, uh, you would look first for one called Unitarian Universalist. There's one on the Upper West Side. They would view Jesus as a moral example. Jesus as a, a good person, a nice guy, a guy who really got it right a whole bunch of days in a row. And so we can follow his example. They don't believe in substitutionary atonement. They don't believe that Jesus dies under the wrath of God to bear our sins, to take away our our sin and our guilt, and to bear the wrath of God and to die in our legal place. Rather, they say that's barbaric. We could not believe that. We believe Jesus dies as our moral example. How to suffer. How to be nice. How to endure hardship. Well, he did endure hardship, and he did suffer, but he suffered for our sins, as we discussed last week. This set of views, this Socinianism, is theologically liberal or progressive, and it is a false doctrine which overran the early American institutions, such as the Ivy League colleges and the Congregationalist churches. 
Socinianism found early Puritan New England a breeding ground for this false doctrine because these churches, because of their practice of infant baptism and non-regenerate membership, they found themselves fertile ground for heresies and false doctrines because these congregations became, within one generation, filled with unbelievers. And then in the Congregationalist churches in particular, those unbelievers who were baptized into the membership of the church, then they got to vote on their pastor, what type of pastor would an unbeliever like? Well, an unbeliever would like a pastor who tells them nice things. Like, you're going to heaven. If there is a heaven, there's certainly no hell. And if there, you're not going to go there. You'll be fine. Just be a good person. Just follow Jesus' example. By the way, Jesus isn't returning. We can usher in the kingdom of God on the earth. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. And we're going to build the kingdom through our moral reform. This was the name of the game. This is the, this is the theology of all of theological liberalism. Marble Collegiate Church on 5th and 29th. Norman Vincent Peale. There's a statue of him out front. It, he's, he's the author of a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. This was their eschatology. This is the reason why the fundamentalists who became synonymous with dispensational premillennialism categorically labeled all of postmillennialism as theologically liberal because that's what it was for 200 years. The idea was we're going to build the kingdom. We just need to try harder and do better. Because we don't believe the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the, the resurrection, the substitution. We don't believe in any of that stuff. But we're Christians because we're baptized as babies and we're going to be good people and transform this society. So this Socinianism spread beyond just the Unitarians. And today, functionally, Socinianism exists in all of the churches that have rainbow flags on them. All of the churches that have Marxist flags on them. You know the ones with the black fist? Or the black flag with the fist that says BLM? There's a temptation to view this false teaching of Socinianism as far removed from us. The temptation is to deny the reality. The temptation to deny the reality of the resurrection is actually much closer than that. Its home is in, its obvious home is in theologically progressive churches, the ones with the special flags on the front. But beyond these public displays of unbelief, there's actually another angle to consider. And that other angle that I'd like you to consider is those who continue to personally reject Christ. People, individuals who personally reject Christ are functioning as if there is no resurrection. These might be some people in this room. Certainly it's the relatives of people in this room. You know, you who are Christians, but you've got like an unsaved mom or dad, or a roommate, or a friend, or a cousin, or a son or daughter, and you, you speak to them about Christ, and they're like, oh, that's nice for you. I'm glad you're a Christian, but for me, nah, I don't really need that. What they're saying is, I don't think that there's actually an eternity, and if there is an eternity, I'll be all right. They're living as if there is no resurrection of the dead. And I would encourage you to be a little more concerned about that scenario Though certainly we should be concerned with the issues that are out there. But be a little bit more concerned with our, our loved ones. 
who may even be in this room right now. I'm not sure. I haven't taken like a, a survey of each person or even an attendance check. People who continue to reject Christ are people who function with the same false theology as the professing Christians in Corinth who say there is no afterlife. So for you who continue to reject Christ and you're like, ah, I, think it's, I think it's cute that my kids or my parents or whoever, they're Christians, but I don't really need it. But Christianity makes for a better upbringing. It makes for a better way of life. So I'm glad that you're doing it, and I'll just kind of be around, but not like go all in. If you continue to personally re reject Christ, why? Why would you do that? Now, don't worry, I have not like left Reformed theology to become Arminian. I know the reason is because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. I get that. But why, why would you reject Christ? I would suggest it's because you're not acknowledging the reality of the resurrection. Specifically, the reality of the resurrection to everlasting judgment. You haven't grappled yet with the reality that hell is waiting for you and its, its mouth is gaping open. There are reports, I don't know if they're true, I don't know if the video is even from this year or not, but there are reports of Israel returning fire on Hamas in the Gaza Strip, um, but the video and the captions claim that Israel announced about 10 minutes beforehand that they were going to destroy this building, gave the people in the building about 10 minutes uh, warning to evacuate the building. And then after that, they dropped bombs on the building, and the building was absolutely leveled. I've seen this video like on eight different accounts in the last so since yesterday. The reason for doing that is because this building allegedly contains offices or a command center for Hamas. But yeah, there's like other people who live in the apartments there. So so Israel um, drops like kind of a like a flashbang type bomb above the building that explodes, but doesn't actually cause damage. So the people are like, oh, let me get out of here. So they can run. Let's say that you lived in the third floor of that building and you heard that um, explosion. But you didn't get up and get out of harm's way. And you ignored that warning. If you were going to ignore that warning, it would be because you don't believe the warning. You don't believe that there's actually danger. You're telling yourself, oh, this is Israel. They're not serious. They just kid around. Well, they don't kid around. They don't mess around with this stuff. Their weapons are more advanced than yours are. You can't, you can't stop them by like hiding in your bathroom. If you believe the warning, you would run for your life immediately. You would leave behind your stuff. You would get out of there, maybe even leaving your shoes behind. You would say, it's time to go right now. Oh, but there's cookies in the oven. It doesn't matter. We're leaving those behind. Oh, but my, my baby Andrew doesn't have shoes on. I don't care. I'm grabbing him and getting out the door. 
Oh, but I haven't finished the baseball game. It's still going. There's only three more innings. It doesn't matter. We're getting out of the door now. That's what you would do if you believe that. So today I'm making the point that there is a resurrection where those who are righteous in Christ will receive their entrance into heaven. And there is a resurrection where the wicked and all those who are outside of Christ will be cast into hell. And today, you need to be aware that this is your warning. This is a 10-minute warning, as it were, about that message. You might be thinking, oh, well, I've been coming here to PBC for the last two years, and it's just so nice. It's a nice place. Yeah, Andy's sermons can get a little political sometimes, but, you know, we just ignore that because I know he means well. And right now I'm not real happy with his sermon, but you know what? I'm sure, like, next week we'll get back to talking about love, and it'll be great. I'm, I'm telling you, if that's you, I don't know if it is, but if it is you, I'm telling you, you need to wake up. You need to pay attention and recognize that there is a judgment day and you're not guaranteed tomorrow. So hear this warning message and take heed. Now, back to our title, Faith versus Fire Insurance. I would like for you to pursue not mere fire insurance. Not just because you're like, oh, there's danger. I guess I need to go buy that insurance policy because I have to. But actually, because it's because you believe, because it's real, because Jesus really is real. He really did live and die and rise again for sinners such as yourself. And the reason why I'm even concerned about this distinction between the fire insurance approach where you're like, yeah, I don't want this, but I need to check the box versus no, I want this is because that distinction is the difference between real and fake. Because fire insurance is not good enough. Now, let's look at our verses um, 13 and 14. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Preaching Christ in the power of the resurrected Savior in contrast with preaching Christ with no resurrection. That's what my notes say. I'm supposed to do something with that. So, what does verse 14 say? Verse 14 says... If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Do you want to hear some bad preaching? Hopefully you don't. But if you did want to hear some bad preaching, <laughs> Julia, you can go hear some bad preaching at any church that has the rainbow flag on the front. You go and you sit there and you listen to the sermon and you're just like, okay, like, when are you going to get to the, <laughs> like, this is dry. This is boring. This is discouraging. This is like I'm being scolded by Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Thankfully, it's only 13 minutes long. 
But this is some bad preaching, okay? This does not encourage you. It does not fill you up. It just crushes you under the weight of do more, try harder, be a good person, and stand with Palestine. Preaching Christ without the belief in the resurrection leaves you with nothing but a really dreadful motivational speech. In contrast to that is preaching Christ in the power of the resurrected Savior. So um, let's say, let's speak hypothetically here, like your pastor actually believes that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So what that means is that there is an afterlife, both for, well, starting with him, Jesus actually rose from the dead. That means he's actually alive today, not just in our, in our minds or in our hearts, but he's actually alive, seated at the right hand of the Father bodily. And then that also means that for you and for me, there is going to be an afterlife, which means that this life isn't all that there is. So then that should give us some assurance. It should balance out our, our boat in the middle of all the storms because we know that this isn't all that there is. But also it gives us confidence because if Jesus rose from the dead, he's not only going to raise us from the dead, but he can raise your currently spiritually dead relative from the dead and save them too. So that gives you hope. It gives you confidence. It it gives you some inspiration to keep going. Because Jesus is alive. And the fact that he's alive, that's the reason why you're spiritually alive. And then that means there's still hope for your mom or your dad or your cousin or your brother or niece or nephew or coworker. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, if in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead did not rise, then Christ is not risen. There is a view... There are some who view faith in Christ as a sort of fire insurance policy or a get-out-of-hell-free card. They might, in a moment of transparency, say, I don't actually think that it's true. I don't actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but we're going to just pretend like it is just in case. Why? Well, because I'd rather live live as if it was true and then die and find out it wasn't true rather than deny myself and be a Christian and be a good moral person my entire life and then die and find out that... uh, Let me restart that sentence because I think I messed up a word. Because I'd rather live as if it is true and die and find out it wasn't true rather than deny that it's true or deny my entire life and then die and find out it was true. So if let's let's say Jesus is not real and you live the Christian life and then you die and that's it. You're annihilated, just like the people said. There is no afterlife. Well then, okay, you lost like 70 or 80 years. But if you deny Christ, and then you die and you find out it is true, you had a nice 70 or 80 years, theoretically, and then you have eternity of eternal conscious torment. So you make this wager, basically. That's what I'm talking about with the fire insurance approach. We're like, hey, I don't really think it's true, but if it is true, I want to make sure that I'm covered. Sort of like me with the car, where I'm like, I'm not going to get a car wreck. Do you know how many miles I've driven and not gotten in a car wreck? Until that one time I did get in a car wreck, 
But like I've driven like hundreds of thousands of miles and never had an issue, so I'm not going to have an issue today. So I don't need it, but I'm supposed to have it, so I'm going to check the box just because. When you have that approach to Christianity and you have that approach to Christ, that's not saving faith. In uh, the the confessions, they speak about um, what is saving faith, and they, they describe it with three words, knowledge, assent, and trust. This fire insurance approach... There's a level of knowledge to it. We're like, yeah, okay, I can buy that policy. And the ascent, we're like, yeah, give me that policy. But the issue is this, this trust thing. Because at the end of the day, with the insurance uh, uh, metaphor, I, I didn't believe I needed it. But I had to, because I can't click next I can't click pay until I click that previous box. And so let's say you're, you're a teenager and you're in the room today and your parents are Christians and you're just like, oh. all right, all right, I'll say the words so I can be a Christian, get them off my case. That might get them off your case, but that's not going to get you out of hell. That type of thinking is not Christian. We don't believe in Jesus on a contingency basis. You know, contingency like like lawsuits and stuff where like you have a lawyer who says, I'll represent you on a contingency basis. I'm not going to charge you up front. But if we win, then you're going to pay. And you're like, oh, great. Sounds good. I don't have money, so we're going to go with this. And so you're like, I'll side with team Jesus just in case he happens to be telling the truth. That's, that's not what we're going for. We believe in Jesus because we actually believe in Jesus. What this means is we've looked at Jesus. We've assessed the situation. We've surveyed the scene, as it were. And we found in Jesus the Savior of sinners. You looked at yourself and you found a sinner. And you said, here we go. This is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been needing my entire life. Sign me up. Give me Jesus. Now, why do you have that? Why do you have that desire? Why do you even have the eyes to see Jesus? Well, our eyes have been opened. We've beheld his glory. And we have been compelled or drawn in an irresistible way to come to him. That attitude is the attitude, the mindset that says, I'm coming to Jesus and nothing's going to stop me. And I don't care what the opposition says. I don't care what hurdles I have to climb over. I'm going to Jesus. So I think of, we haven't had a baby Andrew illustration yet. So here we go. I think of my son. He's trying to get into my office when I'm in there. And he's going to come in. He's going to get in because Dada is in there. He's going to get in there even if that door is just a little tiny crack open. He will shove his way in. He will turn around backwards and push his back against the door and push against the door frame. Or let's say we're in the living room and you set up those footrest things. Uh, for those who know what we're talking about, like those, those gray footrest things. You put them in the walkway between the edge of the couch and that mirror. So you block him. And what did he do before? Well, before, in the before times, he would go and push on that and shove his way through because he wants to get to his mom or dad who are in the kitchen 
you know, doing whatever, microwaving something, and he can't wait the 30 seconds to be apart from them, so he's going to get through, so he shoves his way through. But now that he's developed a little bit more agility, he sees that footrest in the way, and now he just climbs over it. Nothing's going to stop him. Why? Because he, he wants what's on the other side. You who are going to come to Christ are going to come to Christ because you want to. The Bible teaches us that even our desires for Christ are given to us by Christ himself. So if you've heard this message this morning and you're just like, okay, all right, Andy, this is a little hellfire and brimstone-y, but it's concerning to me and maybe I should think seriously about this and actually I need to give Jesus a second thought and, and there's something about this message that has, has bothered your conscience in some way. If that's the case, that's not the case because Andy constructed a great sermon because it's not. But if it was affecting your conscience, it's because Jesus is affecting your conscience through his word and he's drawing you to himself. So don't worry about whether this makes you an Arminian or a Calvinist. Worry about whether or not Jesus can save you. And rest assured, he can. So you who are going to come to Christ are going to come because you want to. You desire Christ because God has given you the desire for Christ. Your desire for Christ actually comes from God himself because God changes your heart, because he raises you from the dead spiritually, because Jesus was raised from the dead literally, because the resurrection is literally true, and there will be a final resurrection where all people are raised from the dead. We need to continue looking at these verses and then wrap it up. Verse uh, 18, 19 if the dead are not raised, if the dead did not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. So that whole fire insurance approach, we're like, hey, I, I don't really think it's true, but I need to check the box just in case. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this whole fire insurance thing is pointless. You are still in your sins, if that's the case. Verse 18, then also those who have died, fallen asleep in Christ, have also perished. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, the most to be pitied, the most pathetic. So if this isn't true, you're actually worse off. You're more pathetic saying, yeah, I'll be a Christian. I don't think it's true, but I'm going to go with the flow because everybody else is. That's actually worse. It's more pathetic than the, than the full hedonist who just says, hey, look, this isn't true, so I'm just going to go do whatever. Verse 19 says that if it's all a lie, we who bought into the lie are most pathetic. But that's not a great way to end a sermon. <laughs> so I'm here to tell you that it's not a lie and that Jesus is risen. He is alive today. And so you who are not yet a Christian, you need to grapple with that reality that Jesus is alive. He is risen. And there is an afterlife. And that afterlife has consequences for each person. So will you come to Jesus? Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those who are in this room who are not yet saved. That you would cause them to see that this approach of being half in and half out on Jesus, whether it is viewing Christianity as a as a you know worst case scenario fire insurance policy or or you know coming reluctantly because a parent is is wanting their kid to be a Christian. Lord, I pray that you would create faith in the hearts of your people, those you have chosen before the foundation of the world to to be saved, that you would open their blinded eyes to see the danger that they are currently in as they are still a child of wrath, as they are still an enemy of God and, and still outside of Christ, that they would see Jesus as the Savior of sinners and run to him to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved. Not out of a desire to manipulate or to um, you know, deceive people, but to come to Christ because they want to. Because they're not going to be stopped by anything else. And they don't care what anyone thinks. They don't care what anyone says. They cry out, give me Jesus. I pray for those who are Christians that we would be um, encouraged to pray for those in our lives that are not yet saved and to warn them of the danger if they were to die in their, in their sins. For we know that there is a resurrection at the end of the age where all people will be raised and some will go into heaven and some will go to hell. I pray that we would not be complacent about these things and that we would not function as if these things were untrue but that we would live our daily lives in light of the truth of eternity. Help us that we would continuously look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, and call upon the name of the Lord that he would save his people from their sins. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.